God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 38, and we're going to begin in verse 37. We're again in the book on God's behalf. And in Job chapter 38, verse 37, we read, Who can number the clouds in wisdom? Or who can stay the bottles of heaven? Barnes on this verse. Who can number the clouds? The word here rendered clouds is applied to the clouds as made up of small particles, as if they were composed of fine dust. And hence, the word number is applied to them, not as meaning that the clouds themselves were innumerable, but that no one could estimate the number of particles which enter into their formation. In wisdom, by his wisdom, who has sufficient intelligence to do it, or who can stay the bottles of heaven, as in Hebrew, cause to lie down. The clouds are here compared with bottles, as if they held the water in the same manner. End quote. Rain is the majority source for fresh water, where rivers, lakes, streams, and aquifers are not accessible to humans. All abundance, therefore, especially in the area of physical nourishment, comes from the processes that God has established through supplying precipitation to the earth. So that if men are content, full and blessed, it is because the Lord has furnished consistent natural laws of nature for them to be so. Verse 38 now. When the dust groweth into hardness, and the clods cleave fast together. The pulpit commentary on this. When the dust groweth into hardness as often means earth or soil rather than dust, when by the heat of the sun's rays the ground grows into hardness and the clods cleave fast together, baked into a compact mass, then it is the time when rain is most needed and when the Almighty in His mercy commonly sends it. The consideration of inanimate nature here ends with a result that its mysteries altogether transcend the human intellect and render speculation on the still deeper mysteries of the moral world wholly vain and futile, end quote. Verse 39 now. Wilt thou hunt the prey for the lion or feel the appetite of the young lions when they couch in their dens and abide in covert to lie in wait? Shifting from the heavens... The Lord now directs Job's attention to the creatures of the earth that solely by God's providence are cared for. Lions are mentioned, which are regarded by many as the most regal of nature's animals, to show that even towards them, through either natural instincts or patience, their needs are provided for. And just as man cannot, through his own power, care for himself without an environment supplied by God, Likewise, man does not care for, nor does he sustain, the well-being of any other of the earth's creatures. This is the Lord's work, and he alone should be praised for it. Pool on this verse. It is by thy care, or God's care and providence, that the lions who live in desert places are furnished with necessary provisions. This is justly mentioned as another wonderful work of God, end quote. Verse 41 now. Who provideth for the ravens his food. When his young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of meat. 
It is not man who provides food for creatures such as the raven. Uh, Psalm 147.9, He, God, giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. There is absolutely nothing in creation dependent upon man for its survival unless by recklessness or sin man is first sought to hunt it into extinction. Chapter 39, verse 1 now. Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do calve? Canst thou, Job, number the months that they, are, that they fulfill? Or knowest thou the time when they bring forth? Moving to the wild goats which live in the high mountain, the Lord asked Job what he really knows about these majestic creatures. If Job could speak very little about the wild goat, which inhabits the highest regions of the earth, how could he really know a God whose habitation is heaven? If also the mountain goat, which makes its home in the highest peaks of the earth, cannot be fully known without great and extensive human effort, how could the God of heaven whom no man can approach, thought to be so easily understood. Verse 3 now. They bow themselves, again in reference to the mountain goat. They bring forth their young ones. They cast out their sorrows. Continuing with the subject of the wild goat, the Lord reveals to Job how man has no role whatsoever in assisting them to bring forth their young. That it is by God's providence that they can be both born and survive in the harshest of earthly environments, without any help from humans at all. By this, the Lord impresses upon Job that unlike domesticated animals, there are many creatures of the earth that have no dependence on man whatsoever. They are God's creatures, who also are abundantly cared for by God's providence. Barnes on this verse. They bow themselves, literally, they curve or bend themselves. That is, they draw their limbs together. They cast out their sorrows. That is, they cast forth the offspring of their pains or the young which cause their pains. The idea seems to be that they do this without any of the care and attention which shepherds are obliged to show to their flocks at such seasons. They do it when God only guards them, when they are in the wilderness or in the rocks far away from the abodes of man. The leading thought in all this seems to be that the tender care of God was over his creatures in the most perilous and delicate state, and that all this was exercised where man could have no access to them and could not even observe them, end quote. Verse 4 now. Their young ones are in good liking. They grow up with corn. They go forth and return not unto them. Though born in elevated and dangerous conditions, the goat young continue to grow and develop like domesticated animals that are fed with corn until such time that they leave their mothers in order that God may provide for them in other ways. All this speaks to God's wisdom in how he has adapted so many of his created beings to both survive and thrive in precarious environments. Barnes on this verse. They go forth and return not unto them. God guards and preserves them, even when they wander away from their dam and are left helpless. Many of the young of animals require long attention from man. 
Many are kept for a considerable period by the side of the mother. But the idea here seems to be that the young of the wild goat and of the fawn are thrown early on the providence of God and are protected by Him alone. The particular care of providence over these animals seems to be specified because there are no others that are exposed to so many dangers in their earthly life, end quote. If God provides for and arranges for the survival and healthy development of the wild goat's young, could he not also provide the necessary assistance and required strength for Job to successfully overcome and gain victory in his trial? Hence, in the same way that the Lord has provided the mountain goat's young, the ability to survive and flourish in the severest of habitats, could he not also provide for the tempted the means to escape and gain victory over it? And just as the, excuse me, and just as the inclement and harsh weather of the Rocky Mountains cannot impede either the birth or development of a young calf because of the strength and instincts it is born with, neither will God allow worldly temptations to be greater than men can bear. Verse 5 now of Job 39. Who hath sent out the wild ass free? Or who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass? Whose house I have made the wilderness, and the barren land his dwellings. He scorneth the multitude of the city, neither regardeth he the crying of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searcheth after every green thing. There are creatures that God has intended to be domesticated, and others like the wild ass that he has freed from human servitude. This is not to say, though, that these same creatures are beyond God's governance. Observe as well that the Lord delights to give certain animals freedom, as much as he enjoys that other animals should provide companionship and comfort to man. There is a beauty, therefore, in the roles God has designed that all creatures play in the earth, whether they are purpose for companionship, sustenance, or many times independence, all is to the glory of God. Verse 9 now, Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great? Or wilt thou leave thy labor to him? Wilt thou believe him that he bring home thy seed and gather it into thy barn? If God has determined that some animals need not be under human subjection, then there is nothing that any can do to reverse this genetic independence. So then, if any creature has been set free by God, it shall prove impossible for men to reverse the natural free instincts imparted by the Lord. Benson on this verse, Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee, Job? Canst thou tame him and bring him into subjection to thy command? Or abide by thy crib? Will he suffer himself to be tied or confined there all night and kept for the work of the next day as the oxen are? Surely not, 
It is much disputed among the learned whether this reem, which is the Hebrew name of the animal here spoken of, be the rhinoceros or a certain kind of wild goat called oryx, or a kind of wall bull, uh, which seems most probable, both from the description of it here and elsewhere in Scripture. Shultons inclines to this opinion, thinking it to be the Arabian buffalo of the bull species, but absolutely untamable, and which the Arabians frequently hunt. End quote. Job 39, verse 13 now. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, or wings and feathers unto the ostrich, which leaveth her eggs in the earth, and warmeth them in the dust, and warmeth them in the dust, and forgetteth that the foot may crush them, or that the wild beast may break them. She is hardened against her young ones, as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear, because God hath deprived her of wisdom, neither hath he imparted to her understanding. What times she lifteth up herself on high, she scorneth the horse and his rider. Though God has deprived some creatures, like the ostrich, of great wisdom, still he has provided for them the necessary means for their own survival. So that even though many creatures are endowed with less intelligence, this does not mean that God has not given them other strengths ensuring their continuance. Barnes on this verse. Because God hath deprived her of wisdom, that is, he has not imparted to her the wisdom which has been conferred to other animals or on other animals. The meaning is that all this remarkable arrangement which distinguished the ostrich so much from other animals was betraced to God. It was not the result of chance. It could not be pretended that it was by a human arrangement, but it was the result of divine appointment. Even in this apparent destitution of wisdom, there were reasons which had led to this appointment, and the care and good providence of God could be seen in the preservation of the animal. Particularly, though apparently so weak and timid and unwise, the ostrich had a notable hearing, Job 39, 18, and when aroused, would scorn the fleetest horse in pursuit and show that she was distinguished for properties that were expressive of the goodness of God toward her and of his care over her. Verse 19 now, Hast thou given the horse strength, Job? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. He paweth in the valley and rejoiceth in his strength. He goeth on to meet the armed men. He mocketh at fear and is not affrighted. Neither turneth he back from the sword. The quiver rattleth against him. The glittering spear and the shield he swalloweth the ground with fierceness and rage, neither believeth he that is the sound of the trumpet. He saith among the trumpets, Ha, ha, and he smelleth the battle afar off, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Attention is now brought to the horse with an emphasis on its fearlessness and readiness for battle. There are few creatures in the earth so powerful, athletic, and beautiful as the horse. There is an attractiveness, strength, and fragility 
that is given the horse by God that makes it unique beyond any other of God's magnificent creatures. No doubt the horse is noble and worthy of great spiritual attention since the scriptures reveal that the Lord Jesus shall return to conquer the earth sitting upon a horse. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Barnes on Job 39.19 Hast thou given the horse strength? The incidental allusion to the horse in comparison with the ostrich in the previous verse seems to have suggested this magnificent description of this noble animal. A description which has never been surpassed or equaled. The horse is an animal so well known that a particular description of it is here unnecessary. The only thing which is required in an explanation of the phrases used here and a confirmation of the particular qualities here attributed to the war horse. For the description here is evidently that of the horse as he appears in war or is about to plunge into the midst of battle, end quote. Job is reminded that it is God who has given the horse its strength and ferociousness to plunge into battle, disregarding even its own well-being. So confident also is the horse in its assurance of victory before entering conflict that it is said that it laughs before it. Hence, neither the shouts of captains nor the commotions of soldiers preparing for war do anything to make this glorious creature skittish of the engagement to come. Barnes on this, and he smelleth the battle afar off, that is, he sniffs, as if it were for slaughter. The reference is to the effect of an approaching army upon a spirited war horse, as if he perceived the approach by the sense of smelling and long to be in the midst of battle, end quote. What a stark contrast between when in his earthly life Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey to that day when Christ shall return in resurrected glory riding upon a white horse which symbolizes his assurance of victory. Revelation 6-2, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Benson on Revelation 19.11, Many paid little regard to Christ when he came meek and lowly, riding upon an ass. But what will they say or think when he comes forth upon his white horse with the sharp sword of his mouth? The white horse on which Christ is represented as riding was intended to denote his justice and holiness, and also that victory and triumph should mark his progress, end quote. Verse 26 now. Again, the Lord asking Job, Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? Speaking pointedly to Job, the Lord now asks him, If the hawk has gained its extraordinary power of flight by Job's wisdom, when one examines the prominent features of birds like the hawk, their gift of flight, as well as the great speeds and distances they fly, you have to wonder if man has ever really even considered that God is the creator of all things. Simply because no man can deeply ponder 
the gifts and abilities given to God's creatures and not be spellbound by God's wisdom. So that if men refuse to attribute glory to God, it is only because they have removed themselves from believing in evidences of himself in creation. Benson on this verse, Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom? So strongly, constantly, unweariedly, and swiftly. Thunasis mentions a hawk which flew from London to Paris in a night. And it was on account of the remarkable swiftness of the hawk that the Egyptians made it their hieroglyphic for the wind. End quote. Barnes also on this verse, Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom? The appeal here is to the hawk, because it is among the most rapid of the birds in its flight. The particular thing specified is its flying, and it is supposed that there was something special in that which distinguished it from other birds. Whether it was in regards to its speed, to its manner of flying, or to its habitats of flying at periodical seasons, may indeed be made a matter of inquiry. But it is clear that the particular thing in this bird, which was adapted to draw the attention, and which evidenced especially the wisdom of God, was connected to its flight. The falcon or hawk is often distinguished for fleetness. One belonging to the Duke of Cleves flew out of Westphalia into Prussia in one day. And in the country of Norfolk, England, one was known to make a flight of nearly 30 miles in an hour. A falcon which belonged to Henry IV of France, having escaped from Fontainebleau, was found 24 hours after in Malta, the space traversed being not less than 1,350 miles, being a velocity of about 57 miles an hour. On the supposition that the bird was on the wing the whole time. In this remarkable velocity, which is here appealed as a proof of the divine wisdom, God asked Job whether he could have formed these birds for their rapid flight. The wisdom and skill which is done this is evidently far above any that is possessed by man. End quote. Verse 27 now. Doth the eagle Job mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? From the hawk to now the eagle, another glorious creature is brought to Job's attention, highlighting the Lord's spectacular wisdom in creating birds such as this. Like with a mountain goat, which lives in the highest regions of the earth, the eagle ascends to the highest atmosphere of the earth. The Lord, no doubt, chooses majestic creatures like these simply because his own home is high and unobservable by earthly men. Barnes on uh, Job 39, 27. The eagle has always been celebrated for the height to which it ascends. When Raymond had reached the summit of Mount Purdue, the highest of the Pyrenees, he perceived no living creature but an eagle which passed above him, flying with inconceivable rapidity in direct opposition to a furious wind. Of all animals, the eagle flies highest. This is from the Eden Encyclopedia. Of all animals, the eagle flies highest, and from thence the ancients have given him the epitaph of the bird of heaven, end quote. Verse 28 now of Job 39. She dwelleth, again with the eagle, in reference to the eagle, she dwelleth and abideth on the rock, upon the crag of the rock, and the strong place. Verse 29 now, 
From thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off. Maintaining Job's focus on the eagle, the Lord now makes mention of its astonishing sight. Pool on this verse. Her sight is exceeding sharp and strong, so that she is able to look upon the sun with open eyes, and to behold the smallest prey upon the earth or sea, when she is mounted out of our sight, which when she spies, she flies to it with incredible swiftness, even like an arrow out of a bow, end quote. So great is the eagle's eye that scientists claim that it can see clearly four to eight times the distance of the human eye. It has also been said that an eagle can perceive an ant from as far up as a 10-story building. Not only then does the eagle have the power of flight, but God has also blessed it with this extraordinary gift of sight. And like the eagle, God can see so many things that others cannot. Verse 30 now of Job uh, 39. Her young ones also suck up blood. Where the slain are, there is she. Because young eagles, like many other baby birds, have no access to water and have nests high above the earth, then God has provided that either the scavenging or kill of their mothers aptly care for their needs. Gill on this verse. Her young also, or her young ones also, suck up blood, as well as herself, being brought up by her. The eagle cares not, the eagle cares not for the water, but drinks the blood of her prey, and so her young ones after her, as naturalists report. The same of the hawk, that it eats no seed, but devours flesh and drinks blood, and nourishes her young ones with the same. And where the slain are, there is she, where there has been a battle, and carcasses left on the field, the eagle will gather to them. This is particularly true of that kind of eagle called vulture eagles. Now, since Job was so ignorant of the nature of these creatures and incapable of governing and directing them and what they had of any excellency were of God and not of him nor of any man, how unfit must he be to dispute with God and contend with him God about his works of providence, end quote. Chapter 40, verse 1 now. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Though Job had a reverential fear of God, this passage makes it abundantly clear that Job had both contended with the Almighty and thought himself able to find fault with God. And now he must give account of the sin committed. It seems remarkable that even godly men like Job, ourselves included, can be tempted to find fault, can be tempted to find fault with the Creator, that we are so vastly inferior to. That even though human wisdom is so much slower than the Lord's, still there can be temptation to question His judgment and to quarrel with His ways. Job's sin is therefore not unique, even among God-fearing men. For who? has not at least at certain times in their life not questioned God's fairness because of difficult conditions faced in this life. Few also have lived any great length of time on the earth and not been at least tempted to question God's government. Yet all striving and contending with the Lord is undoubtedly sin. 
a sin also that has been evident, at least to some degree, in fallen man since the earliest days of his creation. In Genesis 6.3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. It was this contentious state between God and man that eventually led to the world's destruction. Hence, none should minimize how contention and rebellion, if not repented of, can lead to the Lord's wrath being sent from heaven. Simply because those who will not cease in finding fault with the Lord are sure to one day suffer His judgment. And in Romans 2.5, But after thy hardness, an impotent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Barnes on Genesis 6.3, My spirit, in contradistinction to the spirit of disobedience, which by the fall obtained entrance into the soul of man, shall not strive with man forever. To strive is to keep down, rule, judge, or strive with a man by moral force. From this passage we learn that the Lord by His Spirit strives with man up to a certain point. In this little negative sentence streams out the bright light of God's free and tender mercy to the apostate race of man. He sends his spirit to irradiate the darkened mind, to expostulate with the conscience, to prompt and strengthen holy resolve, and to bring back the heart, the confidence, the affection to God. He effects the blessed result of repentance toward God in some who are thus proved to be born of God. But it is a solemn thought that, with others, he will not strive perpetually. There is a certain point beyond which he will not go, for sufficient reasons known fully to himself, partly to us. Two of these we are to notice for our instruction. First, he will not touch the free agency of his rational creatures. He can put no force on the volitions of men. An involuntary or compulsory faith, hope, love, obedience is a contradiction in terms, and anything that could bear the name can have no moral validity whatsoever. Secondly, after giving ample warning, instruction, and invitation, he will, as a just judgment on the unbelieving and the impenitent, withdraw his spirit and let them alone. The antediluvian world was fast approaching to this point of final perversity and abandonment, end quote. If men refuse to cease in quarreling with the Lord by striving against His Spirit, they should not think that God will forever tolerate their sin. If men also persist in contending with the Lord, they shall guarantee themselves being defeated by Him. Since none can continually strive against their Maker and not ultimately suffer complete loss of life for it. Proverbs 21.30 There is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. The NIV on this verse, there is no wisdom, no insight, nor plan that can succeed against the Lord. The Berean Study Bible on the same verse, there is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel that can prevail against the Lord. And lastly, the Amplified Bible, there is no human wisdom or understanding or counsel that can prevail against the Lord pulpit commentary on Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord in opposition to Him, 
which can be compared with his, or which can assail against him, end quote. And in Job chapter 40, verse 3, we read now, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Here we see a dramatic change in Job's demeanor. For now, instead of confessing personal self-righteousness, he openly confesses his own vileness. No doubt the vileness that Job experienced in his soul was directly related to his understanding of being proud of heart. Such pride also that was previously willing to condemn God in order to justify self. And in Job chapter 40 verse 8, Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Ultimately, Job's entire view of life changed. Whereas before he thought God was at fault and himself righteous, now he sees God as righteous and himself as vile. Through then God's Spirit, via the entrance of God's Word, Job had come to realize the true condition of himself. No longer would he lodge false claims against the Lord, accusing God of injustice. No longer would he complain against God's government, for now he fully realized that it was not God who had sinned against him, but he against God. What he previously thought was darkness before God was light, and what he previously thought was light before himself was darkness. His perception was completely changed. God's word had accomplished its purpose, as it always does. In Isaiah 55, 11, we read, So shall my word, the Lord's word, be that goeth forth out of thy mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Through the divinely spoken word of God, the Lord brings men to repentance. By shedding light on their sin, and revealing to them God's holiness. It is thus God's word that brings sinners to their knees, so that they might with sincerity repent for their sin, teaching us as well that all human reason, tradition, and or experience, no matter the length of time given it, will always prove insufficient in accomplishing God's divine purposes. Hence, for God's purposes to be fulfilled, it is both necessary and essential that his word is first sent, because it is only the word of God that can accomplish his will in the earth. Ultimately also, only the Lord can accomplish his own purposes in the people he has called to himself. Matthew Henry on this verse, Job 44, After God had shown Job by his manifest ignorance of the works of nature, how unable he was to judge of the methods and designs of providence. He puts a convincing question to him. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Now Job began to melt into godly sorrow. When his friends reasoned with him, he did not yield. But the voice of the Lord is powerful. When the spirit of truth is come, he shall convince. Job yields himself to the grace of God. He owns himself as an offender and has nothing to say to justify himself. He is now sensible that he has sinned, and therefore he calls himself vile. Repentance changes men's opinions of themselves. Job is now convinced of his error. Those who are truly sensible of their own sinfulness and vileness 
dare not justify themselves before God, end quote. It is a sign that the sword of the Spirit has accomplished its mission when men are more than willing to close their mouths. It is also this stopping of men's mouths that God desires that both His law and His word accomplish in bringing men to repentance. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Barnes on Romans 3.19 That every mouth may be stopped. That is perhaps a proverbial expression. It denotes that they would be thoroughly convinced that the argument would be so conclusive as that they would have nothing to reply, that all objections would be silenced, end quote. Not until men's mouths are stopped through an awareness of sin can we know that they are finally willing to become subject to God's government. This admission of guilt will also contain with it an admittance of uncleanness. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Yet, if there is a refusal to confess, then it will remain impossible for divine forgiveness to follow. For God shall only forgive those who, instead of denying sin, gain the humility necessary to confess it. Psalm 32.5, these are David's words, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. It is therefore critical that men acknowledge personal sin against God if they desire reconciliation with Him. The scriptures also state that only those who possess a broken and contrite spirit will be allowed to share eternity with the Lord. Because for heaven to be entered, a humble and contrite spirit must first be gained. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God here provides the necessary revelation as to who will and ultimately who will not be allowed to dwell with Him on His holy hill. It is those who manifest a broken and contrite spirit because of an internal awareness of their previous pride and self-righteousness. Hence, only those who become sensible that they have sinned against the Lord through also pride and self-righteousness and then ask forgiveness for it shall be allowed habitation with him, since none who deny sin on earth shall find peace with God in heaven. Repentance is thus critical, as Job would learn, before there could be ever any chance of reconciliation with God. It is the first thing God demands in order for men to progress toward salvation, and men would be wise to implement it in their lives. And closing with Matthew 4, 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. 